going to be today in the book of Philippians, in the book of Philippians. We'll, we're going to do our introduction today, so we may look at a couple of passages, but we're going to give our overview today of the book of Philippians. We did Ephesians last week, and um, okay, I'm making sure, let me tell you what happened last week. Obviously, we're recording these each week, and last week, everything recorded, but I forgot to turn the receiver on, and... Uh, <laughs> So unless you're really good at reading lips, that didn't help. So uh, I was trying to find a time to come back in here and reteach it with nobody in here, but uh, I didn't find it last week. But uh, so I have made, I put a big note here and I've made sure that that thing is on and we are recording and you got a mute button here. I'm on here. So everything should be good to go. But uh, anyway, Philippians is uh, a wonderful little book. Um, again, er, a little bit different from Ephesians. And we said Ephesians was different from the other letters. And that's the one thing when you really study these letters, you see the uniqueness of each letter. Uh, and, and it really becomes more than just you know, some, some scriptures in the Bible. You begin to see the whole picture. Whereas we said the book of Ephesians you know, was kind of a general letter as opposed to some of the more specific letters that Paul was dealing with. Philippians comes through in a whole different kind of feel than the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was heavy theologically in the first half of the book, heavy practically uh, in the second half of the book to help people in their Christian walk. You know, while Philippians does accomplish, you know, theology and it does accomplish our walk with Christ, it is way more personal and relational as far as Paul is concerned. Uh, for Paul had a great hand in uh, starting the church in Philippi. We'll look at that in a moment. And his care for the believers at the church at Philippi, he had a great relationship with them. So when you're reading through the book of Philippians, notice those little relational details that Paul gives for the book of Philippians. So let's jump into our uh, who, what, when, where, why for Philippians under uh, orienting data for Philippians on your paper. Uh, most of this is taken from the book. I have added a few extra things uh, in here. But looking at the overall book of Philippians, it says the content. The content is a personal letter dealing primarily with personal matters that concern the church at Philippi, for whom Paul has great affection. Paul's thanksgiving for, encouragement of, and exhortation to the suffering community of believers in Philippi who are also experiencing some internal struggles. So the church is facing a lot. And we as a church face a lot. And other churches and throughout all times face several different uh, you know, situations. We face situations from outside the church and the influences of the world around us and the culture around us, the, uh, the social climate, the economic climate, the political climate. They face the same things here in the New Testament. And then there's the internal struggles of, uh, you know, of divisions in the church, of, of issues that people are dealing with, of false teachers coming in. We see these things permeate the church as well and permeate some of these churches in the first century. So a personal letter uh, about uh, Paul's relationship with them. Paul is updating them on what he has been going through. This, like Ephesians, is what we call a prison epistle. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is in chains for preaching Jesus 
Christ. And he is communicating uh, some of those personal aspects of his life uh, of spreading the gospel and his hardships in prison. But the unique thing about Paul's perspective is not what is happening to him is what is important. For Paul said, I've learned whatever state I'm in, whatever condition I'm in, I've learned to be content. He says, if I have a lot, I'm content. He says, if I'm in need, I have content. He says, so my physical situations do not determine my internal situation. He says, you know, Philippians, and this is probably one of the most famous Bible scriptures to be taken out of context, but, but Paul says, and we'll look at it in more detail next week, but he says, you know, Philippians 4.13, everybody knows Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And we'll find out what Paul is saying there is that no matter what life situation I find myself in, I can face it through the strength of Christ. He's not saying I could jump off the Empire State Building and fly or I can, you know, do this and that. You know, he's not saying that, but he's saying no matter what life situation I'm facing. And Paul is facing difficult situations. But yet there's something internal that grounds him. There's something internal that causes him to be content. There's something internal that causes him to, in every situation, walk with joy. And that's something that we have to learn in the Holy Spirit, is to walk with joy no matter the situation. Because it seems like every day, it seems like most of the time every phone call we get is, is bad news, and every newspaper we open or every website we look at or every news channel we turn on is is bad news and it's people suffering. And that's not unique to us. We're not the first people to ever go through hardships or, or suffer. We're just another in a long line of people that face difficult situations. And that's why I love the Scripture because the Scripture doesn't sugarcoat life. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. He is suffering uh, Epaphroditus, you know, is, is dealing with sickness in the book. There's, and, but yet Paul has this undergirding theme of joy and fellowship and contentment. And at the heart of all of it is the sake of the gospel. So, and his affection for the church and wanting to see them uh, prosper in, in their spiritual lives as well. So Paul, of course, is the author, as we see on our paper. Paul is the author. He's writing from prison. Um, he's joined here by his younger companion, Timothy, who he desires to send to the church. The date written is probably around 62 um, A.D. The church was founded probably around the late 40s. Um, the recipients is the church at Philippi, um, who are mostly Gentile believers, even though there are some uh, exhortations in there uh, that have a Jewish content, mostly Gentile. Again, founded around 48 to 49 by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. A little bit about the city. I do have a map. I like, I like my maps. There's, there, there's our map of uh, the area and where Philippi is. Uh, if you see on the bottom right-hand side of the screen, you have Jerusalem down there. That's Israel. Uh, as you go north, 
Uh, you go into the region of Galatia and Asia Minor. Uh, that's where we were with the churches around the area of Galatia. So that's where the book of Galatians was passed around, up there kind of in the middle of your screen. Uh, then you see Ephesus, uh, you know, the port city where we just looked at the, the letter to the church at, at Ephesus. That, that city was located there. Then you go kind of up from there where you see the red arrow pointing, and there is Philippi. Philippi is interesting because it was the first European city that was founded, and the first European or first church that was founded uh, in the European region. Uh, Lydia, the lady that we're going to meet here in a few moments, was the first convert that we find from Paul's ministry in in Europe. And and you you see that we'll be looking at the church at Thessalonica in a couple of books, and you see Corinth down below. Uh, in Greece there. So this is the area where we are looking at. And we have on our, our paper a little bit about the city of Philippi, named after Philip of Macedonia. Macedonia is that whole area up there. Uh, Philip of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, it was a major city of Macedonia on the road from Rome to Asia. Uh, it was the site of the former battle in 42 BC in which Anthony and Octavius, if you and Brutus, all those names that we remember back there from our Roman uh, history. Uh, in 30 BC, Octavian made the town a Roman colony where retired soldiers could live and enjoy the full privileges of Roman citizenship. So it was a heavy Romanized uh, city and with a great allegiance to Rome and a great allegiance to Caesar with a rich history. So coming out of that, we learn about the church. Let's look together in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Let's look together in the book of Acts, chapter Paul here is on his second missionary journey. And something very supernatural happens in Acts chapter 16. If you look in Acts chapter 16 around verse number 9... Paul and Silas and Timothy had went down to a place called Troas. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, the scripture says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This, this is how Paul worked. You know, Paul didn't really have a predetermined agenda. When he felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul moved. During this night, Paul has a vision of a man calling to him from the region of Macedonia, telling them to, to come and help us. And they took that as a sign from the Holy Spirit that they were to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. Now, if you look in verse number 11 of Acts chapter 16, it says, From Troas we put out to sea and, and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, 
a Roman colony. So he specifically mentions them being a Roman colony here. And the leading city of the district of Macedonia. So this is a very important city. And we stay there several days. Verse number 13 of Acts 16. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was, she was a businesswoman of her day. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And that's the beginning of the ministry and the gospel in the church at Philippi. Starting with a vision from a man, Paul, when he was sleep at night and says, come to us and help us. And then they go and they stay there a few days and they go out by the riverside looking to find uh, some people praying and they find these group of women and they meet Lydia. And she's open to the message of Paul and she becomes a believer. And they have many trials. You, you can read Paul and Silas end up in, in prison there. They deal with some other different kinds of, of people and you can continue to read that story. But uh, uh, this is a second missionary journey. On our paper, it says in Acts 16, Paul has a vision of a man, Macedonia, begging to come help. Paul sees women gathered by the riverside. Lydia responds to Paul's message and is baptized. And then later on, by the time Paul writes the letter to uh, the church at Philippi, the church was well organized. The church was well organized. There's mention of uh, uh, deacons and bishops and overseers in the first verse of the book of Philippians. So because there are uh, bishops and deacons in the church, the church has you know, been operating for some time. They had a system and a form of church government and they had leaders ordained in the church. So by the time the letter to the Philippians was written, they were well organized. Uh, they were a generous church. They were probably a wealthy church. Uh, you know, Lydia herself from the region uh, was a businesswoman in herself. We know they were a generous church because they gave to Paul uh, and they gave to others. So God was you know, really doing a work here in the church at Philippi. And they are, again, very dear to Paul and near to his heart. And Paul's writing this letter as thanksgiving and encouragement, letting them know about his life. And him recently just heard from Epaphroditus about their life. See, the occasion, what prompted the reading or what prompted the writing of the book of Philippians, uh, the occasion is Epaphroditus had brought information about the church to Paul in prison. And he also delivered to Paul their, their gift to him, their financial gift to him. Epaphroditus is about to return to Philippi, having recovered from a near fatal illness. And Paul uses this occasion not only to thank the church for their gift, but to comfort them concerning his situation as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he's writing them to update them of how he is doing in prison. Obviously, they are concerned. He also writes of his plans to send Timothy to them and why he considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to them 
as well. So again, kind of the key theme here is joy. Our key verse, if you could pick a key verse, and there are many important verses. There are many encouraging verses uh, in the book of Philippians, but probably one of the most that best encapsulated theme is Philippians 4.4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And I just like that. I, I just like the wording of that because sometimes we know we should rejoice and be joyful, but we have to immediately remind ourselves. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice, but here's my circumstances, but God says, rejoice. The emphasis that we find in the letter, Paul and the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, Christ as the key to all of life, from beginning to end, knowing Christ by becoming like Him in His death, which is sacrificing oneself for others, rejoicing in Christ even in suffering, unity through humility and love, the certainty and pursuit of the final prize, pressing onward, pressing onward. Again, there's two major themes we see here that we've touched on, but the two major themes, the central theme is joy and rejoicing in the Lord in every circumstance. And that tells us that joy doesn't come from outward circumstances. You know, it's easy to be joyful when everything is going great. It's easy to be going joyful when you have perfect health. It's easy to be joyful when, you have, when you're paying all the bills and there's plenty of money. It's easy to be joyful when everything around you is good. That's not the test of joy. The test of joy is can we remain joyful? Can we keep our thanksgiving to God? Can we keep our praise when things aren't going well? If we only define joy as something that comes from the outward, if, if the prerequisite for joy in our lives is that everything is lining up in my life and everything is going well, we are going to live sorely disappointed. And we're going to continue to live disappointed. So our source of joy has to come from somewhere else other than what is going on around us and what is happening to us. Our source of joy has to come from inside of us. Something that doesn't come from this world, something that doesn't originate in this world, but something that is beyond this world. And Jesus prays that for his very own believers. Um, let me read a scripture from um, the book of John. The book of John... Let's go around chapter 15. book of John, chapter 15, let's begin reading with verse number 
That's a good place to start. Start in verse number seven. Seven. John 15, seven, if you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's probably another one of those that's taken out of context a little bit, but we can't dig into that right now. He says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. John chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Notice that phrase. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made complete. So Jesus is telling his disciples, he's talking about the vine and the branches, that when we are in Christ, when we are abiding in him, we are following his command. And Christ's command is, is the command of love. He says that my love would remain in you and that my joy would remain in you. So first of all, there is a love that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Or I will say this, there is a love that is produced in us as we are walking in the Spirit. And there is also a joy that is produced in us as we are walking after the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible says that joy comes from the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So first of all, joy is a byproduct, just as love is a byproduct, of a person walking in the Spirit. So if I'm allowing anything to steal my joy, and I believe there are a lot of things that can steal my joy. I believe, or I believe there's a lot of things that, again, when I use that phrase, it's almost like I'm taking away my responsibility. Something came in and stole. If somebody breaks in my house while I'm not there and steals my stuff, I didn't have anything to do with that, right? I mean, they broke in my house and they stole my stuff. And I'm not responsible for that. But if I give my joy away, then that puts it on me, right? So I don't even know it's easier to blame the devil than it is to blame ourselves. It's a lot easier. The devil makes a great scapegoat. The fact is, I can let, I can let my situation steal my joy. I can let other people's opinions steal my joy. I can let the negative things in my life. I am giving that power to take for something out here to take something away from me that God has given me. So it's not so much of things coming in and stealing, it's me giving that joy away by not staying in tune and abiding in the Holy Spirit and letting Him fill my life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying we have this relationship with Christ and joy is not an external thing. If I, if I didn't get my joy 
from external things. External things can't steal my joy. I get my joy from God. I get my joy from Christ. I get my peace from Christ. If the world didn't give me peace, the world can't take peace from me. You know, if, if, if I'm relying on the world to give me peace, then yeah, I'm not going to live in peace because there's not peace in the world and there hasn't been. So my peace can't come from the world or else I'll never have peace. My joy can't come from the world or else I'll never have joy. My love can't come from the world because I would never have love and reciprocate love. So as Christians, we are called to live not by this world, but to live by the Spirit. And you don't have to give away your joy. You don't have to give away your peace. You don't have to give away your love. And that's what Paul is saying. If anybody had any excuse not to be joyful, it should be Paul who said, I was, I was in danger in every city I went to. I was stoned. I was, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was in, I was in prison. I, you know, people turned their backs on me. I was, you know, I was facing you know, danger and death everywhere that I went. But he says, I've learned whatsoever state I am to be content and to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. I didn't mean to start preaching, but that's, that's, that's what's in the Word. I'm, try, I'm trying to help us all by saying we have to align our minds right. You know, and if, I'm, if I come home and I'm irritated and I'm mad and I've let things fluster me and bother me all day. It ain't the devil's fault. It's because I allowed it. That's why we have to stay in tune with the Spirit. That's why the Bible says, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication, making our requests made known unto God. So the central theme is joy and rejoicing in the Lord in every circumstance. Uh, joy in the Greek here means the experience of gladness. Uh, rejoicing means merriness. It comes from the word to rejoice, to be merry. is related to the word charis, which means grace and favor. The next theme is the theme of fellowship. Joy is a major theme in the life of, uh, or in the, the letter to Philippians, but also fellowship is. And it's the fellowship that bonds people together by the Holy Spirit. It's the relationship that Paul has with this church and they have with him. It's the word kornonia in Greek. Uh, and it uh, denotes friendship, but it denotes friendship that is really a partnership. It denotes friendship that is a sharing with one another. Paul has certainly shared with them and they have in turn shared with him back. Paul has shared much for their spiritual needs. He shared much of his time, his energy, his own body to them, preaching the gospel to them. And they have in turn, when he left to go, you know, in missionary journeys, and he's in a time of need, they share with him. That's what friendship is. It's a mutual respect and love and partnership. Um, close association involving mutual interest, sharing association, communion, fellowship, and close relationship. And this kind of fellowship comes through God, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not just, hey, I like football, you like football, let's be friends. You know, it's, it's deeper than that. It is something that knits people together. Um, so, koinonia fellowship and joy 
are two of the major themes that drive this letter. Um, as we look at the theme of Christ in Philippians, Christ in Philippians, um, Philippians contains uh, one of the most beautiful and brilliant uh, description of Christ's work on the earth in 2, 5 through 11. We'll look at that in more detail next week. Um, it's uh, listed here as some of the most profound and crucial teaching on the Lord Jesus in all of the Bible. Um, and along with that, pursuing Christ-likeness is, the def- is one of the defining elements of spiritual growth, that Christ is our, not just our example, but Christ is our life. And by the Holy Spirit, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And that's one of the passions of Paul's own life, is becoming like Christ, being an imitator of Christ, sharing in his suffering, sharing in his death, sharing in his life. That's how we see Christ in the book of Philippians. Again, Paul is in prison here. He speaks of his chains um, he speaks of his testimony before the guards and to others in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 13. Um, he hopes to be released, and we'll get into some of this next week. He hopes to be released. He doesn't know if he's going to be released from prison or not. He might die right there in prison. So Paul's, Paul's take is, whether I live or die, I'm Christ. For me to live and to get out of prison is more beneficial to you in the churches. For me to die is more beneficial to me because I get to be with Christ. Um, So he hopes to be released. He thinks he's going to be uh, released, but his ultimate goal is that whether he lives or dies, that Christ is exalted in his life. On the back of our page, uh, a brief outline of Philippians, just kind of a major theme you can pull from each chapter. Uh, Chapter one, you can see the philosophy of Christian living, uh, the theme of Christ our life, and that's the manifestation of the Christian life. Chapter 2 is the pattern for Christian living, uh, that Christ is our mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the illustration of the Christian life. Uh, Chapter 3 is the prize for the Christian life, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward. The prize for the Christian life, that Christ is our goal. And that's our motivation to gain Christ, to finish the race strong. Chapter 4, the power for Christian living, that Christ is our strength, the demonstration of the Christian life. So the philosophy, the pattern, the prize, and the power of the Christian life. Christ, our life, our mind, our goal, and our strength. Um, We kind of touched on, we'll just go quickly through the last, we've kind of touched on this, the overview of Philippians. Um, Because of its encouragement, and because there are so many Beloved passages, Philippians is a favorite of many Christians. Um, to his longtime friends at Philippi, Paul bears his soul more than anywhere else in other, his, his other letters. Here you get a good look at what made Paul tick. Christ crucified and raised from the dead, uh, whose story, Christ's story is recounted in chapter 2. Uh, Paul has given up all of his past religious prophets. We talked about that on Sunday. Whatever was gained to Paul. He counted loss for Christ. So now he counts the loss of all things that were gained to him, that he may gain Christ. He counts them all as garbage in comparison with knowing Christ, who is also the final prize that he eagerly pursues. But the community in Philippi is experiencing some inner tensions 
at the very time they are also undergoing suffering because of pagan opposition to their gospel. So, and that's two things we haven't really touched on. We'll look at it in detail next week. But you have some inner struggles that's going on in the church. Then you have the outward opposition to the gospel. And one of the things that kind of knits the church and Paul together is they are both suffering for the gospel. They are both being persecuted. So Paul can encourage the church because they're suffering for the gospel because Paul is suffering for the gospel. Uh, And they can encourage Paul because he's suffering for the gospel. And they're suffering, but they're continuing on. Just as Paul is continuing on, neither of them are quitting because there is opposition. And I think that's so important in our lives as we look at even our own culture today. In a culture, I won't say a world, but certainly in America, the world has always been hostile uh, to Christians. But certainly in our modern American culture, that is becoming more and more hostile to the church and more and more hostile to Christian ideas. That's not a reason to quit. That's not a reason to quit. That's a reason to continue to press forward. It's a, it's a reason to continue to be more faithful to the gospel. It's, it's, a continue to be, it, it's a challenge to be even more bold that we have not lost the race. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And we need to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded that the times of persecution uh, makes the church stronger historically. It makes the church stronger. It makes the witness of the church greater in times of this. So Paul is encouraging them in the face of their Roman persecution because number one, as a Roman colony and as a very Romanized city, they have great allegiance to Caesar, who Caesar, who set himself up to be, you know, Lord and a son of God and somebody that you pledge your allegiance to in a human king. Now you've got the Christians who are pledging their allegiance to another king, whose citizenship they do not find in Rome, but they find their citizenship in heaven, who they're not bowing the knee to Caesar, but they're bowing to the knee to King Jesus. And they're having to live in that atmosphere being persecuted for their faith and their allegiance to Christ. But they're sending support to Paul, in essence, saying, we're not quitting. And Paul's saying, I'm not quitting. When I'm sitting in chains, I'm going to preach the gospel. In fact, he says, and I'll just read this. He says in um, Philippians 1.13, he says this. Let me just read it real quick. He says, As a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He let everyone know, I'm here for Jesus. I'm here because of the gospel. I'm here because of Christ. I am being persecuted and probably wrongfully imprisoned because of my faith in Christ and my message of the gospel. So the inner tensions and then also the undergoing suffering because of pagan opposition. Uh, Paul addresses these matters head on. He also warns them against adopting Jewish marks of religious identity, uh, especially circumcision. That's always kind of in Paul's letters, not as much so here as in Galatia or uh, the book of Galatians. Um, But no matter what, he saves his thanksgiving till the end, acknowledging their gift with gratitude, reminding them that God himself 
accepted their offering as a sweet sacrifice, uh, which leads to a, a praise of doxology there. Um, we'll, we'll save the last three. You can just read those on your own. We've kind of hit each one of those on the specific advice for reading. We've, we've kind of hit all of those. If you have a book, it goes into a little more detail there. But that's where we stand as kind of an overview. So I would love for you this week. This is a really short book. It's four chapters. Uh, it's an easy read. It's real encouraging. Um, so kind of take these overall themes. And as you're reading Philippians this week, I'll just kind of look for those themes, and then we'll come back next week and kind of uh, dissect this book and several things. So hopefully you'll get a you'll, hopefully you'll get a lot more uh, out of Philippians. Uh, we know a lot of you know verses from Philippians, but hopefully this will help us to get the full picture of what's going on here in this book of Philippians. Anything.